You know, the title, you know, um, sometimes I put a lot of thought into the title of the series and sometimes not so much, um, but I'm, it's always something because it's kind of connecting with who I think we are or what I think we, you know, what God is leading us to be. And, you know, this becoming his church is, is something that I think all churches are should constantly be in the process of, of doing. We should constantly be becoming more and more his church. And, and I want it, you know, to make really clear that it, it is his church. You know, does, you know, do I care if our church is big or small? Uh, not really. I care whether we're his big church or his small church. Um, do I care whether our church is old or young? Well, not really. If we're going to be a bunch of old people, we're going to be his old people church, okay? If we're going to be a bunch of young people, it's his young church. So many books you read out there about church growth and so many, you know, ways to, you know, to, to kind of jack up your numbers and get all of that. It's, it's often at the price of being his church. I kind of want to follow what we've been reading in Acts, what is the church doing in an Acts as, as we've looked in the first seven chapters? The church is being obedient to Jesus, obedient to his word. That's something I, I hope that, that you've seen again and again and again. They're devoting themselves to the teaching of the apostles. They're devoting themselves to scripture. But they're not just trying to study it to get a bunch of knowledge so they can you know, win Jeopardy if ever, you know, Bible knowledge came up as a category. No, they're being obedient to the Word. They, they waited on the Spirit, and then the Spirit came, and, and they're just, you know, being unleashed into this world through the power of the Spirit. And the main thing they're doing in, in the world is they're spreading the gospel, and we're going to talk about that more today. And the main thing they're doing within the church is they're being this incredible, like, covenant people, this community of people who, who are so in love with God, so in love with one another, so much so that they're doing things that we can't even begin to fathom that we would ever be in a situation where we're so in love with God and so in love with his people that we would just sell our, all our possessions and, and have them in common. Like we can't even imagine a, a situation where we'd do that. And that's what they're doing. They're so in love with God and so in love with each other that, that they, can't, they can't wait until they're back together again. They can't wait until they're going from one house to the next house. They can't wait. There's such this anticipation of what's going to happen and such incredible gratitude for what has happened. His church. And as we look today at the scripture, you know, the question is, is that should be kind of spinning through our heads is, you know, how are we his church already? How are we becoming his church and we're on that path? But what are the things that are kind of holding us back? 
And I don't know that anybody in this church believes this. Maybe you do, and if you want to talk about it, I'd love to talk to you about it. But I know a lot of Christians, and especially you know, the Christians I know are the Christians in the United States, but a lot of Christians, they really believe that the gospel is all about just getting along. It's just, we, it's all about getting along with other people. It's, it's this, you know, kind of don't rock the boat just kind of get along with people. Um, you know, we don't, we don't stand up for anything if, uh, you know, uh, the culture is pushing back. We don't say anything. We just kind of go along. In fact, we kind of cringe when some of our Christian brothers and sisters do it and don't do it so well. Like, they don't necessarily do it with great Christian love and grace and mercy. They're just blasting, you know, the other side as though they're trying to you know, destroy them, and they hate them. And so we kind of cringe, and then we kind of want to hide, and we don't want to say anything, because we, we, on one hand, know that what this one side is saying is wrong. The side that's saying the right thing is not saying it in the right way, and so we just think the best thing to do is just be quiet. Because really, the objective is just to get along. Just get along. That's why... You know, you're not going to find a lot of Christians that will, you know, that will do anything. But I want to tell you something, something that, that I don't think enough Christians appreciate. And Jesus told us this. Paul reminds us of this. The book of Acts tells us this, and it's this. The world doesn't want to get along with you. You're like that little annoying kid at school that wants to be everybody's friend that nobody wants to be. Because when they really understand what the gospel is saying, they don't want to get along with you. Look at these first century Christians that we've read about for the first seven chapters. What are they doing? What have they done that, that, would, that would justify First of all, their leaders being arrested and beaten, and then finally one of them being just killed in this just outrage of mob violence. And as we're going to read today, the church being persecuted in Jerusalem and having to leave Jerusalem, tell me what they've done in the first seven chapters that justifies that kind of response. What have they done? They, they, haven't, they haven't been protesting. They haven't been picketing. They haven't had, let's get some petitions to get rid of that, you know, that high priest. Let's get a new one. Nothing. They're just living their lives. People are noticing. People are responding. Peter and John, they're actually helping people. They're helping people who are sick be healed. They're helping crippled people walk. What are they doing? They're loving each other. And when anybody asks why, and they tell them it's because of Jesus Christ, it's because of the man that you crucified that was resurrected. 
and now he's radically changed our lives, that's offensive enough for them to want to exterminate him. How do you get along with people that the very presence or the thought of the existence of a contrary truth to what they're living is enough for them to want to silence you. If we're part of that group of Christians that believe the gospel is all about just getting along, guess what? They've already won because you're silent. But understand, understand that this world when it really understands the claims of Jesus Christ, it's threatened. And it's not threatened because they think, you know, they'll, you know, that, oh, you know, there's gonna be some kind of Christian government with Christian laws that are gonna, that are gonna be, you know, forced upon you. No. People are threatened because they understand that the gospel says there is something fundamentally wrong about each of us that we cannot change no matter how hard we try. And that it is only through the power of the Spirit. It is only through faith in Jesus Christ. It is only through the Word that there is any hope. And the world doesn't want to hear that message. And so what do we find here? Well, we find where we are in the story. We covered what Stephen's response was when he was accused of all these things. And the response of the, of the Sanhedrin and the mob that had gathered was to kill Stephen. And that seemed to like just uncork all of this, this resentment and tension that had been building up in Jerusalem, not among the Christians, but among some of the people. And I always want to say some of the people. I, I really hate it when people talk about first century Jewish people as though they were all anti-Christian. It's not true. It, at this point in the story, just about everybody's Jewish. There's Jewish Christians, there's anti-Christian Jewish, and there's a whole bunch of other Jewish people that don't probably have a strong opinion one way or the other. But there's certainly a big enough group, and they have the ear of the religious leaders and the political leaders, and persecution comes on the church. And so let's read. Chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. If you've never read this story before and you don't understand Luke, you have no idea who Saul is. In fact, the way Luke introduces him, what we should hear is like kind of the Darth Vader music coming in. Like, this is the villain. This is the bad guy. This is the guy representing, you know, everything that's against the church. And it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. 
and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, if we just stop there and we thought, like, that happened to our church, what would be, you know, the response of some of us? I mean, this church that's starting out, they're just brand new, and it's almost like everything has been going so well. They've had some problems along the way. They've faced some persecution, but now it's like on a whole other scale. Now that thing that they valued of being together, they're not going to be together anymore. They're going to be scattered. There could have been people that were really upset with God at this point. Like, how could you let this happen, God? I thought you were supposed to protect us. I thought we were doing your will. How could you let this calamity come upon us? There could have been others that were just full of self-pity. Oh, oh man, troubles. I've seen them. They're here, just wallowing in all their misery. Even as they're kind of scattering at first, the way Luke presents is this, this idea that's almost like they're running, like running away. But then we read this wonderful, glorious verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They're not running like scared rabbits. They're accepting the reality that there's people in Jerusalem and this one dude named Saul who wants to kill us, who wants to silence us, who wants to drag us to prison, take our homes, take all of our possessions, take our children, break up our families. We know that's happening, and we know because of that we're, we're going to leave that area. But they're not running like scared rabbits. They went preaching the word. They weren't preaching the word because they felt, felt God let them down. They weren't preaching the word because they felt like the enemy was too powerful. They weren't preaching the word because they were feeling sorry for themselves. They were preaching the word because they knew what the word had done in their lives. The word had so radically transformed their lives that they, they knew that this gospel is true. They weren't just simply convinced of it intellectually. Everywhere they went, they preached the word. We want to be his church. His church spreads the gospel wherever the church goes, in all circumstances. We don't just spread the gospel when everything's going well, and we want to say, you know why I won the Super Bowl? Because Jesus is my Lord and Savior. Of course, that means probably the other team was just full of atheists. 
right? There was no Christian on the other team, only you because God blessed your team, right? That's always the message that comes out. No, it's not just spreading the gospel when you win. It's not just spreading the gospel when you're blessed. It's spreading the gospel in every circumstance. This is the, this month is the, is the, you know, the 10th year that since, since Cheryl was first diagnosed with cancer. So 10 years that she's been cancer free. And, and I'll tell you though, 10 years ago, 10 years ago, it's easy when you get that kind of diagnosis or when someone you love gets that kind of diagnosis to say, okay, I'm just going to kind of check out of all this you know, Christian gospel thing and I'm just going to feel sorry for myself. I'm just going to be so worried about my future and, and my family's future and my children that I'm just going to forget about this. It's so easy to do. And we've all done it. We, we, we want to blame everything else. The problem with Christians trying to be victims is you're denying the sovereignty of God. When we're always blaming other people for why I feel however I'm feeling, and by the way, I'm not disregarding that, but when that becomes like our go-to all the time, I can justify my anger because God filled the world with idiots and they all are related to me, you know, or something like that. When we do those kind of things, when we let our circumstances dictate what we should do, it's a problem, huge problem. And when we collectively as a church do it, even more so, my dad was pastor for 30 years on the other side of the island. And there's some of you, especially some of our older folks, who don't know what that means. It's called Eva Beach, okay? It's a place way over there. When I first came here to be pastor and people said, hey, you're going back home, I was like, well, sorta. And I would explain to people, I grew up on the west side. It's a little different from the east side. Everybody from the west side, when I say that, they go, yeah, that's right. People from the east side, they go, really? How's it different? But it was different. And, you know, the community, there was you know, so much you know, crime, and we didn't realize it when we were growing up, what was going on. But as I got older, I realized there was like drugs everywhere in our community people selling, people using. We had a guy in our church, he, he once was giving his testimony in our church, and I still remember that he, would, he looked out at our church and he said, five years ago, if you guys saw me coming, you guys would have run because I was the enforcer who collected the money for the drugs. And I'm looking at all the people in my church thinking, oh, <laughs> all of you, he knows all of you. And our church had, had, had so many struggles over the years. You know, when my dad first got there, you know, there was this church of about, you know, about 200 people. And then, and then one summer, one summer, about 
half of them rotate out because they were all in the military. And our church halved in size, financially struggled from that day forward. And our church wasn't perfect. Our church, like I said, we had so many struggles. We were in a tough neighborhood. But I'll tell you something that I always saw my dad do. My dad always preached the gospel. Always. It, it wasn't about, hey, our church is growing and everything's awesome. Okay, now I'm going to share the gospel. Always. Every Sunday, you could guarantee that my dad would present the gospel. Throughout the week when we were kids, we sometimes hated to go on errands with him. Because, you know, he might go into the post office and come out like 30 minutes later. Not because there was a line. If we're going to be his church, we need to be his church that spreads the gospel, regardless of the circumstances. This connects to Acts 1.8, where, where Jesus, Jesus had, had, had said to them, you know, you will be my witnesses. And what's interesting is, when he says you'll be my witnesses, he actually says, you'll be my witnesses, and then he names places. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth. Notice what he doesn't include there. He doesn't include people. My assumption is that this first group of Christians who are all Jewish, that they're listening to Jesus saying, all right, Jesus, we're going to go find all the Jewish people in the whole world and call them to Christ. And we know that in the book of Acts, that that that's probably their interpretation because every time, every time the gospel spreads beyond Jerusalem and starts going to those Hellenized Jews and then starts going to those Samaritans and eventually to those Gentiles, the church needs an act of the Spirit so that they know this is a movement of God. But they get it. Wherever they go, in all circumstances, they began to preach the word. They didn't have perfect knowledge. They didn't have perfect understanding. They weren't perfect Christians, but they knew this. They knew the power of the gospel, and they were going to share it. In verse 5, we get one of those accounts talks about Philip, and it says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, They sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So we have these stories, and Luke's doing what he does. He's telling this big story, and then he's kind of introducing another story that's coming along. But the big story is the gospel is going to Samaria. And I, on, on Wednesday nights, we talked a lot about, you know, what was Samaria and what was the relationship between the Samaritans and, and the Jewish people. And, and, and really, it wasn't good. In fact, there was a lot of um, animosity, hatred, resentment. And it wasn't kind of a new thing. It wasn't, you know, the Hatfields and McCoys. We've had this feud going on for decades. No, this had been going on for about seven to 800 years. And Samaria had become this this mix of different cultures, including some of the Israelites. That wasn't so much a problem. There were cultures all, all around that the Jewish people didn't have a problem with. The problem that they had with the Samaritans is the Samaritans believed that they were the true followers of God, that they had the true covenant. They had their version of the first, what we consider the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. They had their place of worship. They had their priests. And so it was now from both sides, both claiming to be God's people, both denying the other that standing. It's religious, it's cultural, it's ethnic. There's such resentment, such animosity. And again, every time the gospel goes to this other group, of, this, this group outside of, of the traditional Hebraist Jews, there, there needs to be a sign. And the sign that we, we have here is the apostles coming. In particular, they name Peter and John. And Peter and John pray for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. And they do. And it talks about, you know, this, this kind of bringing together of, of you know, they, they had believed in Jesus, but they also needed to receive the Holy Spirit. And for me, what I find here is, this, is there's, an ex, there's an example being presented here that we actually saw earlier, and it's going to be repeated. And I think there's a specific reason for the particular manifestation of the Holy Spirit in this situation, and it is to connect what happened at Pentecost with what's happening in Samaria. But I think what Paul will unpack later on for us 
and what Jesus had talked about earlier, especially when we read the Gospel of John, that Luke is bringing together these, these two essential parts of what a church is. If we're going to be his church, we need to not just follow his word, we need to experience his spirit. We need to know his word, we need to study his word, we need to follow, we need to, to obey his word. But we also need to experience the Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, that little phrase has been taken over by kind of a misunderstanding of what that is. A lot of people think experiencing the Holy Spirit can only happen, or you know, it's the main way it happens is when somehow you lose control of yourself and the Spirit takes over. Maybe you're going to speak prophecy, maybe you're going to speak in tongues, maybe in some churches you're going to crawl around on the stage barking or laughing uncontrollably. Like that's, that's why a lot of times people are afraid to say experience the Spirit in churches because they think that's what it is. That's not what it is. What I hope you've picked up from what we've been studying, not just in Acts, but in, in our previous studies. And I, I love to go back to, uh, you know, when we went through First John, or to go back to Romans, where what's consistently tied to experience the Spirit is knowing that you are loved by God's unconditional love, but also knowing that you now can and do love as only God can love. That's what's happening. These, these Jewish Christians it's going from theory to reality. We can all talk about, oh yeah, I love everybody. Do you really? Do you really? If we're really honest, there's people that we just would not feel that welcome being around if they showed up on a Sunday morning. Do we really? There may even be people currently in the church. We're not even talking about people that want to try to kill you. We're just talking about somebody in the church that you just don't like. It's this love we talk about, this impossible love. The world talks about love and they try to put it on a pedestal and then they mush it around so it doesn't really mean anything or it just means everything. But we're talking about this impossible love, this love that we, that we just you know, celebrated, displayed on the cross. When Jesus Christ is, is there revealing who God is and, and part of that revelation is when he looks at the people trying to kill him and he says, forgive them, Father.
Paul talks about in Romans 5 about the Spirit pouring out God's love on us. It's not just an idea. It's not just a principle. It's not just on a list. You, you, you should experience it. You should feel it. It's not just knowledge. People who say love is not a feeling, they're lying to you. Love is a feeling. The problem is love is not only a feeling. It's more than that. If you reduce love to a feeling, yeah, you're missing the point. But if you say, I have love, but I've never really experienced it, what do you actually have? I don't know. If you say, I have love, and you hate your brother, as John says, what do you actually have? I don't know. And Paul says in like 1 Corinthians, he says, the greatest, he says, faith, hope, and love, these incredible things, the greatest of these is love. And it's like God has said, look, this is the best way, the most important way that you can experience the Spirit. And we're like, well, God, you got anything else? Do you, do you got some other way I could do it? Because, you know, I, you know that love thing's kind of cool, but hey, if I could heal people, that would be better. I'd like to heal people. Can I heal people? Can you give me that one? I'd like to be able to predict people's future. I want to have that one. Can you give me that one? You know, or maybe you've done the, God, if you're really there, you know, can you show me a sign in the skies? And God's going, I've shown you a sign. I've poured out a sign on you. And it's not good enough for some of you. You're looking for some other sign. Because you know why? Because this sign of God pouring out love on you demands something of you. Demands something of you. That's why Jesus speaks this way, and John, in his, in his first letter, speaks this way, where he talks about love being a command. We know in, in our lives that doesn't work well. I don't know any of you married people that the whole thing started out with one or the other one saying, I command you to love me. That's usually like big red flag, don't date that guy. There's something wrong with him. Because we all know that. And yet the Bible puts together command language with love language. Obedience with love. Why? Because when God's love is poured out on us, it, it demands something of us. But it doesn't just demand it. It gives us the ability to do it. God's not just this cruel God who 
keeps giving you impossible standards to live up to. Yes, they're impossible, but then he gives us the way. And yet we're constantly looking for other signs. We're constantly trying to find other evidence. If I were to change that point, you know, for me, I, I, you know, I think what it says is true, follows his word, experiences his spirit. But I think it would be that we would follow his word and we would know his abundant love. You know, one of the ways I know when I'm struggling as a Christian or when I know somebody else is struggling as a Christian, it's when God's love is not good enough for them. When it's, it's, it's when they're, they're, they're so obsessed with how someone else feels about them that it just crushes them to the point that God's love for them doesn't matter. The fact that God created them that God rescued them, that God redeemed them, that he empowered them, that he equipped them, that he, he surrounded them with people who could help them. Instead, all they can think about is how so-and-so thinks about me or what, how people treat me. And by the way, I'm not saying that gives us carte blanche to treat each other poorly. That's not the point. We should be affected when, when you know, someone you know, attacks us, we shouldn't be like, like emotionless. I'd be kind of worried about you if that were the case. But we cannot be so crushed, we cannot be so overwhelmed that God's undying, unconditional love for us no longer matters. Cannot penetrate into the deepest, darkest place that we might find ourselves. Places where we feel lonely, that his love is there, because he is there. This story takes a twist at the end. We hear about Simon again. It says, now when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So you have this story about this, this guy Simon, and and, you know, there's a lot of nice scholarly debate over whether Simon, when it says he believed and was baptized, was, you know, was tr truly believed. And, you know, it's not really the point of the story. How do I know it's not the point of the story? Luke doesn't finish the story. He doesn't finish the Simon story. 
The story's not about Simon. The story's about what Peter is saying to Simon. You see, what Simon was saying could have been kind of attractive to Peter. It could have been a temptation. It could have been a way to, to get a very influential and powerful person on his side. Think about this. This guy already had a reputation in Samaria, and now he's on our team. And again, I don't want to preach this sermon. I'll just mention it. Sometimes as Christians, we do the same thing. We hear about a famous person who becomes a Christian, and we're like, we want to get them as quickly as possible on our team. We don't care that they're baby Christians growing in their faith. We just have their name. Let's use it. It was tempting. It was tempting, you know. Peter might have thought like, hey, you know what? Maybe we can develop a, develop a program. Let's put a book together. You know, let's, let's you know, you know how, how to lay the Holy Spirit on people in five easy steps. Let's do that. It's this temptation of, of earthly gain, of wealth, of influence, all in the name of spreading the gospel. But Peter understands what's at stake. And he has this very harsh rebuke. And from this, you know, I think what Luke is showing that this early church did, that this early church was not going to compromise the gospel. They're not going to compromise the gospel. That's the problem with the getting along thing. To get along with people, it often involves compromise. You know, if, you know, I've heard people say, like, you know, I could probably be a Christian, but you know that, that story about Jesus being on the cross? It's just, it's too weird. It's too bloody. You know, if we could get rid of that, you know, I like the rest of it. Let's compromise. I like the love part, but then when you talk about that sin part, I don't really like that part. Let's just, let's just talk about love. That's great. That's awesome. Let's talk about that. You know, let's, let's kind of market Christianity a little better to be more attractive to people, to draw the crowds. And I always provide the caveat. That doesn't mean God wants us to be intentionally boring or intentionally harsh or intentionally just ugly. But he does want us to properly share, to properly live the gospel. And the problem with compromise is that when the gospel is properly shared and when the gospel is even understood at some level that people will understand it's a threat to all that we hold dear. All that we hold dear. What did Jesus say? You want to follow me? If you want to follow me, then you know what? Come 
to our club meetings. It's, it's once a month. The dues are small. That's all you got to do. Follow me. You guys remember that scripture? No. You want to follow me? Take up your cross. You want to follow me? You're going to lay down your life. People are drawn to the message of Jesus until they see the price. And they see the price that it's the letting go of all these things we hold on to. Even those things that we hold on to that make us bitter, that make us angry, it still gives us a sense of control. They may even make us depressed, but they give us a sense of control and experience. So we hold on to these things. And what we miss is that, yeah, the gospel is a threat to all we are. But the gospel promises infinitely more. Infinitely more. We would rather hold on to the, to the little thing we can see than let it go and embrace the love that comes from an infinite God. And by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic. I know how it is. I'm not going to tell you that there's been times in my life when I just want to hold on. I don't want to... I don't want to look to what God's going to do because I'm afraid he's going to take away things that I really, really like. But his church does not compromise the gospel. I think some of the questions that, that we should ask ourselves is, is, what about us? What about us here at Wildlife Baptist Church? Are, are you know, how are we sharing the gospel in our circumstances? In fact, I think a, another question that's related to this is, is why should we? You know, why do people evangelize? You know, when I was growing up, the reason to evangelize was to keep your friends and family from going to hell. That was the only reason. Other times, you know, evangelism was, was told to us because that's how you unlock God's blessings. Other times it was presented as it's a duty that we should do. And I'm going to tell you there's truth in all of those. But I think the most effective sharing of the gospel is when you share the gospel because you cannot help but tell other people what Jesus has done and what he is doing in your life. Evangelism explodes when, when our experience with God is so transformative that we cannot help but tell other people. And I'm not talking about just huge, mind-blowing things. Sometimes it's just the little things God's teaching you along the way. The way he's chipped away at these attitudes and these habits that have become so entrenched in you.
but it's talking about your Savior and your Lord and what he's doing every day. We cannot be his church if we're not relentlessly sharing and living the gospel. What God has done, what he's doing, and what he will do.